0: Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Would be the miners.
1: Sure. They're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate
0: the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I
1: don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says I do not believe in fairies somewhere, there's a fairy that falls down dead. We're women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this
0: building. Simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. There's one thing the history of evolution has taught us. It's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are in my not-so-humble
1: opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic.
0: Welcome, this is Bite the Pen. I am Jen, and sitting on the other side of, like, the longest castle ever is Charlotte. Hello, Charlotte. How are you?
1: Hello, Jen. I'm very well. How are you on this fun Halloween season? I'm
0: good, because it's probably considered to be the best time of year. Spooky charm of Halloween, and, like, the lo-fi fall aesthetic music and, you know, pumpkin spice lattes and delicious apple cider. It's good. I use a Tim Burton soundtrack when I'm studying. <laughs> nice. I realized, and you realized, that we kind of have a tradition now, if you can believe it. This is our fourth Halloween episode. And if you have listened to previous ones, you have an idea about what this theme is that we've been doing. So we've talked about Beetlejuice, Goosebumps, and Scooby-Doo. So, once again, we are returning to this popular genre of horror in children's literature and media. And we're going to talk about the book series that scared me as a child. Did it scare you as a child?
1: I didn't even know about the series as a child. <laughs> I've been asking around. My theory is that our elementary school did not have these books. We knew about Goosebumps. That was a thing. Yeah. We never saw this book on the shelves. And I'm not saying wow. we, we had banded or anything. I just I just don't think we had them. So thank you, Jen, for introducing (laughs) us.
0: Absolutely. I think that'll be a, a good conversation then from somebody who was affected by it and read it as a kid and somebody who wasn't. So we'll use that to our advantage. But the books we're talking about are the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series. There's three of them. They're written by Alvin Schwartz and originally illustrated by a very haunting Stephen Gamble Personally, if, I would suggest if you aren't familiar with these books to just go look up the book covers and some of the art just to get a better idea of this balance that we're going to be talking about between children's literature and the horror genre. And there's one book cover in particular I would suggest. I consulted my art historian partner to help me like try to describe what kind of art this is. She told me that Gamble's illustrations look like they're pencil or charcoal, and they sort of have this like watercolor effect, which is kind of an interesting combination. And it sounds really nice and pretty, but it's not as horrifying and very unsettling. A big part of the reason why these books have been considered to be banned or challenged in some way. But we'll talk more about that later. Sorry, so long-winded.
1: It really wouldn't be the same without the illustrations. The marriage of the two were extremely perfect
0: yeah and it's interesting to compare it to something like goosebumps too where you don't have that as much there are images then you when you think of goosebumps and you're familiar with the series you think of the ooze on the covers of each book but it doesn't hold the same weight in terms of the illustrations so it's very interesting
1: yeah we'll talk about it because that's like deep psychology shadow rather than like cutesy scare
0: yes true So do you want to tell us a bit about the story origins and the categories and stuff?
1: And what, yeah, what we're talking about when we say scary stories, because that could mean so much, right? True. (laughs) So the category it lists it under is children's horror, which is what R.L. Stein's Goosebumps and Fear Street are listed under. I would not start with that description because it could be anything. What I would start with and stick with is... It's a collection of folktales and urban legends from many places, mm. many people, and then from many versions. But it all has that central theme of fright. And then an- a suggestion on where to read them, to tell them, is In the Dark. And that's why it's in the title, Scary Stories, To Tell in the Dark. Mm-hmm.
0: That's the cool thing about it is it kind of returns back to old storytelling, oral storytelling.
1: Yes, you have that ancient feel. Even though there's urban legends and a lot of them are modern, it's still that psychological depth of fear and anxiety and the things that we only have nightmares about. And the details we're filling in because it is folklore and it's urban legend. And we'll talk about how that language is different because it's minimal and it's open-ended because you, as the dreamer, are filling in the details and we're so good at filling in details when it comes to fear. Yes. And then the illustrations, oh my God, we'll talk about that because that fills in a lot for us too. Yeah, definitely. My point is in that way, it's more like the Brothers Grimm collection of fairy tales rather than R.L. Stein's Goosebumps. There was this documentary done in 2019, I believe, called Scary Stories, and it's about Alvin Schwartz's work. It's funny because even Stein, this is great, the way he describes the difference between his work and then Schwartz's work.
0: We were opposites in many ways because his books were so completely researched he would spend a year researching these old ghost stories and old legends from all over i've never done research in my life
1: (laughs) and that's what makes such a big difference it's entirely someone Mm -hmm. else's content that he has researched refined and kind of targeting children instead of just the general population. But that is what folktales are. It's a general thing. It's not necessarily even for kids. I think we think about that because it's simple language and because we retell it in different ways and in different cultures over different time periods. But it's not. It is psychologically for all of us. Definitely. But it's a different process than somebody's personal imagination coming out in this very strung out narrative versus this is the collective unconscious. I'm listening to different versions, and then this is how I'm presenting it. I'm kind of like, oh, I would really not want to call it children's horror. I would rather call it folktales and urban legends. What do you think about that?
0: I think those two very large concepts come together really well in these stories in particular. I definitely think they're children's horror, but I definitely think they're within the context of folktales.
1: And I think I'm thinking when we talk about like censorship, if I were to pitch it to a parent Maybe that's why I'm saying I wouldn't start with children's horror. The educational experience is not that. It's exposure to cultures, exposure to a deeper psychological connection with something Mm. that they maybe haven't thought about in that way. They're just keeping it as this really low-level fear. And when it comes out, their brain is filling it in perfectly. Yeah. And now I'm not so afraid anymore. I will we'll totally talk about all of that. But I think maybe in my mind, I'm saying it's important to say it's a scholastic work because it is so researched yeah. and because the author actually gives us the notes, gives us the resources and where he found them. So I'm like, yeah, if that's not a reason to keep it on the shelves.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: I had an example, a, a very short excerpt, because if nobody has read any of these stories, I have from his third book introduction, this is a perfect excerpt of what kind of writing it is. Hmm. The girl was late getting home for supper, so she took a shortcut through the cemetery. But oh, it made her nervous. When she saw another girl ahead of her, she hurried to catch up. Do you mind if I walk with you, she asked. Walking through the cemetery at night scares me. I know what you mean, the other girl said. I used to feel that way myself when I was alive. So it's like, (laughs) oh! So beautiful. Yeah. Minimal language. The diction's super easy. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's open-ended. That's the part about folk tales and urban legends that really, I think, are important for children in that developing stage, that they're trusting them enough. You know this psychology. This is part of your coded unconscious, so you fill it in. Totally. Creepy. Chills. It is so good. And we suggest, of course, to read all of them.
0: You can read them in like a day. They're really quick reads, and it's a good way to support your library because you don't need to buy them if you aren't going to read them again. But definitely recommend to read. They're really fun to read.
1: I think academically and scholastically, when we talk about censorship, this part is going to be important to justify his work, which is the way he structures these stories. Because like I said, they're from all over. Some of them are ancient, quote unquote, ancient. Some of them are actually modern. Some he even took from authors. There's no limit as to where the stories are coming from. Like I said, the central theme always has to be this effect of fright. And he tested each story in his bathroom, reading them out loud to make sure that indeed they are for the dark, which is a great way of testing that. It's
0: so funny. Be like, honey, what are you doing? I'm working, okay? I'm reading scary stories in the bathroom in the dark.
1: So his introduction gets you in the mood. And then this is interesting. He sort of. Divides them into subjects or themes or even sometimes like the effect the story gives. And I have a few examples of that. So the first book, is, I think this is, I don't know, said, like section three, it's called They Eat Your Eyes, They Eat Your Nose. And they're all around subjects of macabre, I would say, about death, decay, body changes. And it's gruesome. For kids, you would call it recognizing that your body can change and the fears of what your body's doing. Mm, yeah. But from that one, I want to point out there's this famous song called The Hearst Song. Remember this? Yes. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms play pinochle on your snout. <laughs> I think there's a few reasons why this one's good, which is that it's accompanied with music, but also the origins of it is World War One, mm. And the soldiers sung it because this had been one of the bloodiest wars that our country had ever experienced. Yeah. And it's interesting that they would come up with a song like this because one of the lines is like the jelly between your toes and people tend to remember that line the most. They put you in a big black box Cover you up with dirt and rocks And all goes well for about a week And then your coffin begins to leak And the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out play pinochle on your snout they eat your eyes they
0: eat your nose they eat the jelly between your toes a
1: you can tell that the language it's not censored in the least you're getting all of these gory details and it's sort of starting you off with this story that yeah you're gonna die and this is gonna happen to you
0: and it's a, a way of owning it it's a way of being able to process it and accept it i mean that people have been doing it with song since the beginning of time so it makes a lot of sense to me that this would come out of uh, a war. Exactly.
1: And I mean, how else are they going to process all of that death? Is, is just to say like, you know what? That's, that may happen and that's okay. It's not something to be afraid of. I mean, you would hope you wouldn't die in battle, but.
0: Quick sidebar. We've been watching the new show, A League of Their Own. It's very good. I highly recommend it. But near the end, the coach gives this speech and she's like, you know, the other team is better than us. They're just better than us. And they're like, why are you saying this? And she's like, because once you say it, you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. And I think that's like a really good way of looking at this. Like, This is a way for you to come to terms with something like death and seeing your your friends and your brothers and whatnot being in a situation that you would never want to see them in. And you own it by singing songs like this and accepting that it's there takes away some of the fear. Good.
1: Yes. Cool. So that's an example of one section, one theme, I would say. But then there's different kinds. There's also this one called The Last Laugh from book two. And this section is all about the humor of the grotesque or making light of the grotesque. And the one I just plucked out real quick because I liked how it ended, it's called The Brown Suit. And two wives are at a mortuary and one wants her husband, corpse, to be wearing a brown suit. The other one wants him in a blue suit. And The Undertaker, seeing that the corpses (laughs) are wearing those colors, they're just not on the right person he just swaps their head Mm -hmm. and I'm like that's great you know like logically it works out fine (laughs) it's such
0: a good reveal too they're just like how did you manage that so quickly and he's like oh we just switched the heads and you're like oh okay (laughs) great
1: Uh, that horror genre of the twist ending which we've talked about in goosebumps and other things yes that hits you even harder because it's so short and clever
0: yeah, I don't know how people write these things. Like, I would never be able to come up with something like that. That's amazing. <laughs>
1: That's to me. what I mean. It's, it's <laughs> probably passed through so many lips. This is what we've come up with after yeah. all these years.
0: Community story.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Another one I thought I should mention, a category, because I think, according to the internet, that this is the most popular story is Harold. Hmm. If you ask people, like, which one do you yes. remember? It's, Absolutely. it's usually Herald. Yeah. And that comes from book three. This section is called On the Edge because he describes it as these stories could not happen, but some say they did happen. Right. I think that's more of the urban legend. Totally. And well, I want, let me ask you. So why do you think this one's the most popular? It's just really psychologically
0: scary, to be honest. I don't know if I have much more of an explanation <laughs> other than that. Uh, that's a great description. I'm so no, sorry. No, no. <laughs> I, I'm, just,
1: I'm so curious because the first thing people say is usually that is that they get ill. And I I think I have, a. I mean, other than the gruesomeness of the situation, which is that these two guys create a life-size doll and they call him Harold after this really grumpy farmer that they hate. And they beat it up.
0: And berating, not just like hitting it, but berating it, taking out your vocal frustrations out on
1: this thing. And I think that's going to be my point, which I think it's so popular because today our social commentary is bullying in modern time, that's mm. one of our biggest fears is what happens when you bully and what it does to you and what it does to the person being bullied. Mm. So in this case, even though it's a doll, after a while, the doll starts making noises. And one of the guys is like, do you hear that? Yeah. And he's like, I think I do. And then it comes up to this time when one of the friends is looking for his other friend. And he looks back and Harold is on his roof, splaying out this bloody skin.
0: Drying it out.
1: Yeah. It's drying it out. So it's it's this really disturbing way of saying this comeuppance of bullying is a real thing and it's really damaging and you can be really punished for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think there's also something about innocence. You do something to an inanimate object with the idea that it is innocent. And maybe that is a good way of looking at bullying where you you don't see the other person as being a person. In terms of the bully doesn't see the other person as being a person. Or even just the idea that like a good person, somebody who doesn't like the grumpy, mean neighbor, can be so easily turned. There's a lot of different things going on there having to do with that. Because it's not just that they create a doll, it's that they give him a name. And then it's not just that they give him a name, but they start yelling at him or like, you know, verbally abusing him. And then it's like, that's not enough. So they start hitting him. And then he starts making noises. And at that point, it's just like, okay, we're all going to (laughs) die. Yep. And then creating, I guess, also kind of a Frankenstein thing where you create the monster that destroys you.
1: Yeah. There's a lot going
0: on in that story.
1: That theme and that symbolism of the lifeless getting life and what what that means and why. You can go in different directions, of course, because there's like Pinocchio, but that's not the direction it goes in. (laughs) Yeah. It is more like the Frankenstein, like you said, monster. Yeah. It's interesting because one of the versions had the friends baptizing Harold as well. Yes. Legitimizing him as a human being. So you're right. There's something to that and it makes it horrifying. Chills. I have chills.
0: Do you? Oh
1: my God. (laughs) (laughs) And I did want to just mention because they're not all about death and dying, a lot of them are also like supernatural or abnormal situations. Real quick, it's called Sam's New Pet. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Again, nobody dies in this one, but it was the social fear in the 80s of Mexican immigrants coming into the States, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Alvin Schwartz did a lot of research around this one because there's so many versions. But in this version, an American couple who is actually well-intended brings back what they think is a hairless dog from Mexico for their son in America. And when the dog gets sick, he starts foaming at the mouth and doing really weird things to take him to the vet. And the vet's like, this is not a dog. This is a sewer <laughs> rat. And
0: it has rabies.
1: (laughs) And it has rabies. Yes. that's Sorry, that was an important detail. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea in in his notes, Alvin Schwartz actually suggests that the legend reflects anger over Mexican workers who entered the U.S. illegally and competed for jobs held by Americans. Hmm. So and he said there's a similar one in France, which is based on the arrivals of workers from Africa. Interesting. This repeated pattern of fear of the foreigner Hmm. and what they bring again, why I think this is a scholastic work more than anything is because there's a lot of deep social and economic and political subjects coming up here too. Absolutely. And for kids to read it like these stories, I think is important because they wouldn't understand when we say, well, there's these like immigrants coming from Mexico. And they're like, so what, you know, like, what does that mean?
0: And I I make that point a little bit later, I think that It's one thing to tell a child something, but it's another thing to show it to them in a story. There's a reason that we remember Red Riding Hood and we understand that we're not supposed to talk to strangers because of that story. It's not because some adult was like, don't talk to strangers. It doesn't mean anything. But when you put it in that context, you remember it. You just do. Exactly. Especially if it's scary.
1: Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. The fear factor is important. (laughs) Yes. And then just to mention that, so the way Other than formatting it in these sections, the way he ends each book includes his notes, his sources, and a bibliography. Yeah. So he knows how to do the research and he knows how to cite and he knows how to reference others if you are more curious about the origins of these stories or the countries that they come from.
0: It's so cool, especially for kids, for young kids that this is written for. I just think that's so cool. And I think somebody, one of the librarians in the documentary talks about that. And she's like, how could I ban this book? Like, we've never seen anything like this it's got the stories and then it has the sources. Like, we're not gonna get rid of it.
1: This is basically what they're encouraging kids to do and book reports and research, like this is it. If you want a well-rounded student, this is how you do a piece of work It's right here. Totally.
0: So you gave us a really good idea of the order of his books, the style of his books, the origins of the stories. Like, what do we need to know about him as a person?
1: Yeah. Uh, Not that much, actually, because I've mentioned quite a bit already. (laughs) But it's it's nice to know that he started as a reporter, a journalist. So he has that investigative background. Mm -hmm. And then when he started writing, it's interesting, his writing is mostly for kids or about kids. And he himself was a father of four, I believe. I found this article in Chicago Tribune, and this is what it writes about him. Quote, Schwartz did have a diabolical turn of mind. And an abiding but whimsical attraction to the comically morbid and grotesque. Mm. On paper, anyway, he evidently had a hearty, if academic, appetite for blood and guts. Nice. I love it. I think even R.L. Stein says something similar in that documentary, which is like, you know, people are expecting this really animated figure who may be looking dark and weird, but it comes out as like some old white dude who's completely academic. Yeah,
0: <laughs> totally. <laughs>
1: I think that describes Alvin Schwartz, which is very appropriate because they were writing around the same time. I think Alvin Schwartz went first with his 1984 Mm. was the first publication. Mm. And then Stein was later, I think, 1991 was his first fierce Mm. Street. So they were very close together, but so similar as people that you wouldn't expect them to be in their heads this way. to like love the grotesque and the morbid.
0: Yeah. Within the realm of children's literature, which is really cool. I like it.
1: Yeah. Oh, and I'm glad you brought that up because another quote from that same article before, because before Schwartz died, he Schwartz, he died kind of young, I thought, like in his 40s. Yeah. But his editor wanted to clarify what he thought his intention was. So mm. this is written in the article, too, which is that Schwartz was an indefatigable scholar whose intention was not to frighten children, but to entertain and educate them by recycling and modernizing our most widely circulated and cherished tales of terror. Hmm. I think you said something similar, right? Which is like it's mm-hmm. different when it's folktales because that's the education bit. It's not just entertaining, but the definition of folktales is to educate.
0: I don't know about you. I've never read a fairy tale, a folktale, or any kind of tale for children that was gruesome. <laughs> not once. There's no witches cooking children or children <laughs> cooking witches. Or worms
1: between your toes. Exactly. or Exactly.
0: <laughs> The question that I think we've already kind of answered in a way, which is kind of obvious, but we're going to talk about it anyway because we wrote the script and that's how it's just going to be. Why were these (laughs) books at the center of controversy in school? They're scary stories. They have scary illustrations and that should be it. But obviously horror and children's literature have gone hand in hand since the beginning. What you just said, they're there to teach children lessons. And if you tell a child to not talk to anyone on their way from home, they might hear you but not understand what can happen, and this is a really safe way of telling them what can happen or showing them what can happen without them actually. It's just a different kind of way of learning information. I do want to mention Caitlin Doty She's a popular YouTuber, and she's amazing, and I love her, and she's a mortician. And she uses her platform to talk about what she calls death positivity. She talks about Western death anxiety and death phobia that really like permeates our culture. She's written like three best-selling books and she has almost 2 million subscribers on YouTube and she started this organization that helps advocate for natural burial and embracing human mortality. And it sounds morbid to me, but when you watch her or you read her books, you realize that like this western death anxiety can be easily fixed. She wrote a book, will my cat eat my eyeballs? and she explains <laughs> the, the most seemingly morbid questions come from kids. And her book answers some of the most common questions she gets from kids with answers for kids and for the rest of us and she doesn't shy away from the gruesome details about like what the kids are asking about because that's what they want to know because they're kids you know and obviously it's different because it's nonfiction and it's not a book that has scary illustrations or like fictional stories but i think it speaks to the same thing kids want to know these things I did read something that I'd like to, or a quote that I'd like to read about the horror genre specifically in children's literature. Fear and death and by extension horror are primal. They are some of the most honest core elements of the human experience. When we shield children from them we are censoring and restricting them from the truth and the world around them. Horror teaches them about countless things folklore history fear and themselves how will they grow if they don't understand their fears how will they learn about life if they don't understand neutrality of death above all taking away a child's right to learn is censorship and manipulative and i think that's what we're kind of saying so far so all of that goes to say that in many cases scary stories to read at night was considered a challenge book when there's a formal complaint made about a book in a school system, which I mean, it's usually the school libraries that this happens, these challenged books become banned books. And that's when they're like taken out of the school and nobody has access to them. And parents push for these books to be banned. And some of the administrators were willing to do that. And in a lot of cases, it was the librarians or other parents who objected to the challenge. And I mean, I think it's kind of obvious that quite a few of the people that complained talked about It coming from a religious standpoint, specifically, they talked about the devil. So I just wanted to give a tiny bit of context. The number one most challenged book from 1990 to 1999 was Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. The second was a book about a kid with a gay father. HIV and AIDS and the AIDS epidemic reached its peak in 1995, right in the middle of this decade gay men were looked at like monsters and for the most part like lesbians were just completely overlooked and of course straight people also had hiv and aids and then at the same time there was another mass panic and that was about the satanic panic in the 80s and 90s and you have adults at that time freaked out about ritualistic sacrifices satanism and of course horror and even goth culture and then you get something like the west memphis three and it's like this perfect combination of fear and paranoia and i'm glad that we don't still live in that as much i mean it's still there but not like it was um even in the last like 10 years school librarians still get requests from parents to remove the scary stories to tell it in the dark taken from their schools i did see that the organization that compiles these lists about the most challenging banned books talk about how now most of the books concern sexual situations political viewpoints and lgbtq characters But it is still one of those books that constantly is kind of like there's a new generation of kids that read it. There's a new generation of of parents saying maybe they shouldn't. And I wonder if that's going to change now that like our age are having children and there are so many people our age who love these books. What do you think? Sorry, I feel like I've been talking for like three hours.
1: (laughs) This is all great information, though. I love that you're giving the context of what else was banned, because I was solely focused on religious groups saying like, when it comes to death, there's ways to talk about it or not talk about it, I should say. Yeah. But man, when you get into this like other realm of what was being censored, it makes sense that, of course, this is going to be just one of many. Yeah. Also, I feel like this is good news because Schwartz himself was all for the controversies. Like that means it's working. Whatever this is, it's working. Yes. Yes. And he's right. And you're right. Every generation is not lessening their interest in it. Every child that comes up for elementary school is going to be like, oh, what is this book? Oh, my God, I'm going to take it home and like read it under my covers." Yes. (laughs) Or if they have really cool parents, they'll show their parents and their parents will be like, cool, if you have any questions, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) really simple yeah and i would hate to think any of those decisions will be reversed because there was like a whole thing in the 90s right that lasted like six hours is what the documentary was saying Mm. but if the argument was said and agreed upon i like i hate going back to that i hate going backwards yeah hopefully what they'll do is just keep it let's say in the middle school or in the high school yeah but i don't agree with that i really do think schwartz was right that maybe age nine and above is when the exposure should start yeah and if I were a parent, I'd be like, you know what I would do, actually? I would maybe start with Goosebumps and then get them into scary stories. Because at least Goosebumps is is in that realm of, oh, I'm giving you a world to imagine. Now that you have some material there, go and imagine more with these folk tales.
0: Totally. I think you're right. Like, I'm not saying we should traumatize our children by having them read this as soon as they can read. Right? <laughs> However, <laughs> you, you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we're not parents, so what do we know? But in my opinion, you want your kids to be prepared for things. You can't hide things from them. And it's better that children understand that it's okay to be afraid of things. And there's a way to deal with that. And it really is sort of a way to begin a discussion, I think. And, I mean, you know, what more could you ask for? Done. So, that concludes the first and biggest half of the episode I think now we would both really like to talk about the stories we picked and perhaps read them and also if anybody listening remembers these books or has read them recently and you have a favorite story let us know I'm really curious to see what people think or maybe which one traumatized you the most I don't know whatever speaks to you
1: So my pick is from book two and it's called rings on her finger or ring on ring. her finger. Is there one is there ring one on ring? her finger? No, it's ring on her finger. There's one <laughs> ring. <laughs> Mine's really short. So I'm just going to read it out loud. Is that okay? Yeah. Like we're supposed to in the dark. Daisy Clark has been in a coma for more than a month when the doctor said that she had finally died. She was buried on a cool summer day in a small cemetery about a mile from her home. "'May she always rest in peace,' her husband said. "'But she didn't.' Late that night, a grave robber with a shovel and a lantern began to dig her up. Since the ground was still soft, he quickly reached for the coffin and got it open. His hunch was right. Daisy had been buried wearing two valuable rings, a wedding ring with a diamond in it, and a ring with a ruby that glowed as if it were alive. The thief got down on his knees and reached into the coffin to get the rings, but they were stuck fast on her fingers.' So he decided that the only way to get them was to cut off her fingers with the knife. But when he cut into the finger with the wedding ring, it began to bleed and Daisy Clark began to stir. (laughs) Suddenly, she sat up. Terrified, the thief scrambled to his feet. He accidentally kicked over the lantern and the light went out. He could hear Daisy climb out of her grave. As she moved past him in the dark, he stood there frozen with fear, clutching the knife in his hand When Daisy saw him, she pulled her shroud around her and asked, Who are you? When the grave robber heard this corpse speak, he ran. Daisy shrugged her shoulders and walked on and never once looked back. But in his fear and confusion, the thief fled in the wrong direction. He pitched headlong into her grave, fell on his knife, (laughs) and stabbed himself. (laughs) While Daisy walked home, the thief bled to death. Damn. So good. So good i mean this one's almost funny too it's karma you know yeah i was gonna say i'm gonna talk about comeuppance man because this yeah. one really works for that but first i also want to describe the illustration yes. and why it was such a big deal for steve Gamble to be the one to do this because like jen mentioned at the very beginning there is something about negative and positive space in his art that really defines the creepiness a really short quote from the smithsonian that same article The way it describes his art is dead on, dead on, dead on. (laughs) (laughs) It reads, it is, and it isn't when it is, it's all these murky, ominous, indistinct images that evoke fear, fog, thorns, veins, arteries, and insect like creatures. When it isn't, there are these holes and silhouettes and white areas that contradict the whole scene Two competing spaces that contradict one another. Your mind is forced to go back and forth. It's very unsettling. That's, that was a great description of it. Right? And and Gamble himself apparently was a really private guy. Yeah. And that he didn't consult the authors of the books he took on. He didn't want notes. Yes. That's interesting, right? Yes.
0: he. I mean, he was an artist as well. That was how he worked. And I, I really like that, especially because it's the opposite of Schwartz, who is like hyper into history and notes and knowing exactly everything
1: isn't that great
0: it's perfect i didn't actually say i'm sorry i got really distracted by i think by the context that i didn't even talk about some of the other aspects of controversy can i just mention real quick
1: please do let's talk more yes
0: years later they changed they re-came out with the book with a different artist with different illustrations and people did not like it they were very vocal about it with good reason it's very cartoony and cutesy And, you know, I'm sure if that's what they had on the books in the first place, parents wouldn't have said anything, nothing. But it's because of these images that really, like, ties it in. And they went back. They stopped producing that version because nobody liked it. Because it was like, what the hell? That's half of the story is the illustration, especially for a kid's
1: book. The kids of the 90s, this is what the documentary was saying that the kids of the 90s were just so pissed off when this edition came out. Yeah. And they did. They justified it by saying, this is the book. You can't just take away what originally made the scary story scary. Yeah. I don't know if that intention was to censor the material any. I think it was just like a fun anniversary thing, and the illustrator was not Gamble. Totally. But that's what it did. That's what the effect was. It was censorship. And there's this article called the 18 most egregious art replacements from scary stories. (laughs) And the guy puts them side by side, the original and the new just to juxtapose the difference. And he's right. It's like one is meant for folk tales. The other one is meant for a children's book. It's not the same effect.
0: Yeah. Again, I don't have children, but in what I've seen, kids know when something is written or made for them. Versus when something can include them, but isn't specifically talking down to them. And I think that that's what that did. I mean, I think it made it like, here you go, kiddo. Now everything's fine. And that's just not helpful.
1: That's the best way I would have put it ever. It's including them. It's not like they're stupid. Of course they understand. And when they feel included, it makes such a difference. Such a difference.
0: And there's just a certain age range. I mean, it's not true for all children, but there's a certain age range where kids really like scary things and they don't fully appreciate what they mean to us as adults. And I think that is okay. That's just an exploration that we're not child psychologists, but I think it's okay. That's my two cents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I agree. And the fact that they could disturb us as adults still. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Back to what you were doing.
1: What were we talking about? (laughs) 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 I'm glad we talked about that because the illustrations are tremendously important. And in this story, it's beautiful because it's this graveyard. Daisy Clark is in what looks like almost a hospital gown. Mm. And, you know, her hair is all like stringy. And so it looks like she could have been dead. And, you know, she has just one hand out where her ring's. Are still in her hand because, of course, the grave robber did not succeed in getting her rings back. Of course. And just, oh, the, the feel of the graveyard in that negative space and where it's black, mm-hmm. where it's white and, and the moon and the clouds. It's just like, oh, it really puts you in that space of like, yeah, grave robbery was a real thing. Mm. And people coming back from the dead was a real thing. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, before embalming, that actually happened more often than people would imagine. Sometimes there were some precautions taken, like this uh, the expression saved by the bell mm. comes from when there was a string put into the coffin and attached to a bell above ground. So, if they for some reason were declared dead but woke up later in their coffins, they could just pull on the string and hopefully the undertaker would hear the bell <laughs> and it's be totally saved. By insane. The bell. <laughs> it's
0: a It's a miracle that any of us survived this far. So good.
1: But once embalming became, I think, part of protocol, it's an injection of poison and it preserves the body. And I think that was the idea when you have open caskets that you want to see a picture of that last moment of life. Yeah. But in this case, it was one of those like buried alive deals. Mm. It's funny for us, I think, because the sense of comeuppance is very cathartic yes (laughs) because grave robbing kind of sucks like you're it's i guess it's logical because some people are buried with their really valuable possessions yeah but other times they would take body parts right and sell them to research yeah and sometimes that felt really wrong i mean in the 18 early
0: 1800s early 1900s you could get quite a bit of money for body parts and people needed money so
1: and again, we can go into that discussion of, well, yeah, because the bodies are just there. They're not doing anything. And yeah, I think the reason why the story has been retold, because this is one of the fears that we're in, even specifically the Catholic and Christian mm. mentalities, somebody is going to degrade our resting places. And that's a big no-no. Right. And that's why this story feels like a comeuppance, because he got what he deserved. He's the one that died because he desecrated a body.
0: Yeah. Well, and also, I think... Death and burial, and people being involved in the funeral and the whole process was much bigger. I mean, everybody was involved in it. It was a community thing. And now, thanks to embalming and thanks to the funeral industry, we kind of have this separation where we drop the person off to the funeral director, the mortician. We have them do it all. We we peek over the casket if they're if they're embalmed or if they have an open casket, and then. They take them away, you know? And we're just not involved anymore. And I think that's also a big reason. We don't think about it because we don't have to. Oh, my gosh. It's just not part of our rituals anymore, which is too
1: bad. I didn't even think of it like that. Damn, that's a big deal. You're right. Does the YouTuber mention things like that? Like how the rituals used to be?
0: Yeah. I mean, one of her, I think her first book or one of of her first books, I don't know, is about... Uh, how different societies and cultures deal with death. And so she goes into a lot of that. But in the, on the YouTube station, she also talks a lot about the funeral industry and its progress or lack of progress in the last hundred years. And it's really interesting stuff. And she's an advocate, like I said, for natural burial. And she's all about having family members involved with the process because it, it helps you process a death. That's what ritual does. It gives you a way of coming to terms with things and being part of it. So you really do have a different perspective on death and uh, what people want after they've passed. And I think that's really cool.
1: That's beautiful.
0: Like I have some of that Western death phobia, but she's really helped me kind of come to terms with that and see it for what it is. It's a very grounded thing it's a part of life it's nothing to be afraid of it's just another thing another aspect and i really appreciate her her doing this because it's she's a woman in the industry which is has very few women in the industry and she's sort of an outlier because these funeral directors want your money and they choose profit you know and she's saying no no <laughs> Well, but so a story like this, Ring on Her Finger, really kind of, I think, is a good example of why it's a folktale, and it makes you think about things like this, which is good for children and for us and for everybody, and to, to understand the context for these things in the past and in the present, I, I just think it's a really good thing. I agree. <laughs> my story comes from the third book, which is a good one as well. The third one had a lot more longer stories, whereas the first one had a lot of short stories. And of course, the second one kind of had both. It was sort of interesting to see that uh, transition. But my story is called Just Delicious. George Flint. He loved to eat. Each day at noon, he closed his camera shop for two hours and went home for a big lunch. His wife, Mina, cooked for him. George was a bully, and Mina was a timid woman who did everything he asked because she was afraid of him. On his way home for lunch one day, George stopped at the butcher shop and bought a pound of liver. Yum. (laughs) He loved liver. He would have Mina cook it for dinner that night. Despite all of his complaints about her, she was a very good cook. Well, that's all that matters. (laughs) While George ate his lunch, Mina told him that a rich old woman in town had died. Her body was in the church next door. It was an open coffin. Anyone who wanted to see her could. As usual, George was not interested in what Mina had to say. I've got to go back to work, he told her. After he left, Mina began to cook the liver. She added vegetables and spices and simmered it all afternoon, just the way George liked. When she thought it was done, she cut off a piece and tasted it. It was delicious, the best she had ever made. She ate a second piece, then a third. It was so good, she could not stop eating it. It was only when the liver was all gone that she thought of George. He would be coming home soon. What would he do when he found that she had eaten all of the liver? Some men would laugh, but not George. He would be angry and mean, and she did not want to face that again. But where could she get another piece of liver that late in the day? Then she remembered the old woman lying in the church next door, waiting to be buried. George said he never had a better dinner. Have some liver, Mina, he said. It's just delicious. I'm not hungry, she said. You finish it. That night, after George had fallen asleep, Mina sat in bed trying to read. But all she could think about was what she had done. Then she thought she heard a woman's voice. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has it? Was it her imagination? Was she dreaming? Now the voice was closer. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has my liver? Mina wanted to run. No, no, she whispered. I don't have it. I don't have your liver. Now the voice was right next to her. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has it? Mina froze with terror. She pointed to George. He does, she said. He has it. Suddenly the light went out and George screamed and screamed. The
1: (laughs) Talk about ratting somebody out.
0: (laughs) Yes, I love it. I love it so much for so many reasons.
1: Talk about comeuppance in this one too.
0: (laughs) Yes, I didn't mean to also pick a comeuppance story, but to be fair, I think there's a lot of them in these. There are, yeah. And I really like this one because it's also kind of like a sense of justice in the end, where he's like a jerk to her and all he doesn't listen to her and all he thinks is that she's a good cook. So, like, bro, that's what you get. Sorry. What did you think? Did you, I mean, is that the sense you got?
1: I totally agree. I mean, at the beginning, <laughs> like, what a jerk. And it's, there's a lot of the like cannibalistic themes in these stories yes. as well. And some really work. There's that sense of grotesqueness, but also why notness? <laughs> yeah like and when this this woman actually feels feels totally fine with taking i think it's a toe again again with toes i don't know what it is about toes. <laughs> so many toes <laughs> but she's like yeah this would make for a great soup i'm totally gonna do this yes. and in that story she's if anything she gets annoyed with the dead guy who wants his toe back and she's like fine i'm done with it yes. anyway have it back yeah and in this one it's like that same sort of feeling with you know why not she's just there and he needs his liver yes kind of works out fine it. <laughs> it's beautiful was there any other reason why, why you chose
0: this one? It was mostly because of the cannibal aspect. Yeah. That's been something that's disturbed people for a very long time. There's a joke in in one of my friend groups that I'm a cannibal. Because what? I once said, just once, I only said it once, although I've said it many times since, that like I would definitely try human meat and I'm somebody who is mostly a vegan. <laughs> but it's like you can't pass up an opportunity. As long as I know where it came from, that it was like, locally organically sourced and nobody was hurt in the process i'm gonna try it when i say i'm hungry they're always like watch out everybody watch out the cannibal is hungry i'm like okay so i had to pick it for that and of course i mean the feminist in me was like hell yeah this is actually what he called he says it's one of hundreds of stories that come up that are the same makeup as the story, The Man from the Gallows, which The Man from the Gallows is the story that they source it to, I think, but it's also commonly known as the story about the man with the golden arm, which is the one that I think I've heard. um I couldn't remember where I'd heard the story before. It was actually from Beverly troop Hills. I don't know <laughs> why that was where I remembered it from, but. Cool. They tell that story in there when they're having a creepy campfire, and this is the scary story. Oh. Um, but he he talks about these stories having roots in an ancient tale of a man with no work whose family is starving. And he's searching for food, and he comes to a gallows where a criminal has just been hanged. He cuts the dead man's heart out or some other body part and takes it home. That night, his family feasts, but while they sleep, the man from the gallows comes looking for that part of his body. And when he can't find it, he takes with him the person who stole it. So this follows that story closely. And he says that it's a retelling based on accounts he had heard over the years in the northeastern part of the U.S. as early as the 1940s. And he said there's a New York City version where a husband saves himself by removing his wife's liver and giving it to the ghost as a substitute for the one she had stolen. And I was oh. like, Nana no we're not having that for mina mina deserves better okay <laughs> so <laughs> mina deserves to to live on without you so i really like how he twisted it in the end with this this version i really appreciate it for that that's reason.
1: great
0: in terms of like the themes in this that i think obviously are from the past and continue to the present i mean hunger and i'm gonna call it misplacement you know like accidental misplacement. I don't know if that's a term. I think that these are themes that speak to humans, like their primal hunger is a primal feeling and cannibalism in a lot of cultures is a primal thing. And it's part of our genetic makeup, I think, as humans. Add in like a bit of justice to that wonderful little meat pie and there you have it. You know what I mean? Like it—it
1: can't not be relevant. I think we even talked a little bit about that with Hansel and Gretel, didn't we? Absolutely. But when it comes to like eating, cooking, and eating, and and you know, fulfilling yourself, it's interesting. And in Mina's case, it's like, of course, she was hungry. She liked her own cooking, and she has to appease her husband. So she's a problem solver. This is what. Yeah,
0: (laughs) she's a real problem solver. I love it.
1: (laughs) But also, like, how scared of her husband did she have to be, right? To go through those lengths of, uh, it's just, yeah, you know, he yeah. deserved it. You know, he did.
0: There's so many good stories to pick from that hit you in different places. That I think is really fun, and it, you really can. The nice thing about anthology is is that you can find the story that speaks to you the most or really hits on your fear. The spider one is a very popular one that freaks me out. I do not like it. It's very creepy. The image of it is very creepy and i understand why it's scary cuz spiders are already scary but there's i feel like there's a story there that can speak to anybody's particular fear the other one that i liked is the hook oh yeah um i remember reading that one as a kid and that's a very fun one but the the one that really freaked me out was a woman's driving home and there's a guy oh, following yeah. her and every so often he puts his brights on and then he turns them off and where he used to freak me out so much. But then when she gets to her home and gets out, which you're never supposed to do, never do that. Always drive to the police station if somebody's following you. Right. She drives home. She gets out. The guy hurries out towards her. She's freaking out. And he's like, there's somebody in the back of your car. There's somebody. Every time he stood up to like hit you or whatever, I turned on my brights to scare him off. It's like, Ooh. like, you think that he's the scary one. But really, he's like trying to help out, which is really fun.
1: Another technique of horror. Which is always spot on with the wording of expectation. Yes. Because then it feels satisfying because it's appropriate, but you didn't expect it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because you're like, okay, what's going to happen when he confronts her? What's he going to try to do? How is she going to protect herself? Like, you can, like, think of everything. But then the subversion, obviously, is like, you didn't even notice. Somebody was in the back seat the whole time. Even there's a more modern show about urban legends and they do the one with the woman who they do it a little bit differently but the girl who's not afraid of the cemetery and so her friends bet her that if she can spend the whole night there that they'll give her money or whatever and so she waits waits and waits and and then she hears something and i don't remember exactly how it goes down but she ends up stabbing the earth with her knife or whatever and she gets up to run and the skeleton has her and so she dies but actually she had just pinned her own skirt (laughs) To or her coat to the ground.
1: That one freaked me out too. It's you creating the scenario out of your own fear. Oh man. Yes. That was, that was tough. That one in the, I think it's called the white dress. Yes. Which feels also like an urban legend where the dress is bought from a secondhand store and it happened to be on a corpse that was embalmed. And uh, when she wears it, she goes dancing and her sweat gets mingled in with the, the dress poisons that are in there. And that night she doesn't wake up. So in my mind, that's like, God, that's something that could happen today, right now.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: So yeah, some are really realistic. Others do yeah, feel more like yeah. folk tales and fairy tales, but that doesn't make them any less scary.
0: No, exactly. <laughs> They're equally scary, just in a different way. <laughs> yes. I mean, honestly, if you just want to have some fun with your friends or whatever, just read a couple out loud. They're really fun to read.
1: Too. They all come down to chew on you And this is what it is to die I hope you
0: had a nice goodbye Did you ever think as a hearse goes by That you may be the next to die And your eyes fall out and your teeth decay And that is the end of a perfect day If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it. You can also talk to us, if you'd like, on Twitter, at BiteThePen, on Facebook, and you can like and follow and review all of that fun stuff on iTunes. And if you would like to support us and you have the means to do so, that's also fantastic. We have... A couple patrons to name today that's jesse m Jeanette m and thunderfly your support is very much appreciated and if you can't support us in that way no worries just like share us with some people if you get the chance or just talk to us let us know what you like what what you don't tell us what you don't like we don't want to (laughs) know just tell us what you like (laughs) if there's like a suggestion you have on an episode or something we'd love to hear that as well and of course we're going to
1: follow up at the end with a beautiful quote Hope everybody enjoys the season of spookiness and scary stories and Samhain, Halloween, however you celebrate the season.
0: I do. Okay, I'm so sorry. I do want to mention one more thing really quickly. I read an article that there are parents talking about Hocus Pocus 2 saying that it is involving witchcraft and children should not watch it. (laughs) We still live in these times. These times are now. It's stupid. Go watch Hocus Pocus. It's I'm sure it's, I mean, the first one's great. We're going to watch the second one on Halloween. So I just wanted to mention that. And we'll see you next time. Caps off.
1: So from the Smithsonian Magazine, that article I mentioned, it reads like this. When we're reading a scary book, there's a layer of protection. We're able to be curious without putting ourselves in harm's way. Fear isn't so binary. It's not all fight or flight there's something thrilling about fear. It's not just about working against death, it's also about enjoying life.